is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry. And today we are kicking off the new volume of Thrash It Out with the 2017 Thrasher piece from Overkill, The Grinding Wheel. Volume four. I know, man. Can you believe it, man? (laughs) I can't believe it. I was actually talking to, I was just telling you this before we started recording, but I I was talking to someone at work this week about the new Ghost album. And I was talking about how for our podcast, we have this amazing Facebook community where I can go and post my just batshit crazy theories about songs or or albums <laughs> or like connections that I've made that that just are personally how what the stories I tell myself about albums. And we have this amazing community that not only like encourages that, but then will post their own interpretations and they'll yeah. take it a, a step further and stuff like that. And so um, as I was talking about that, she was like, what do you mean podcast? And so we started talking about the podcast and I was thinking back over all the episodes that we've done. It's to the point now where when someone mentions a band, I have to actually stop and think, wait, did have we, we do an episode? Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, to- I totally do. I'm like, wait, I, I did that for this one. I was like, wait, we have we done Overkill yet? No, we haven't done Overkill yet. And so that is where we're at now. We're at the point where I have to sometimes refer back to our website to make sure that we haven't done an episode yep. on a particular band before yeah, yeah. or to look back and be like, wait, what album did we do from them? Oh, right, right. It was that right. album because people were talking about a different one or something. So, uh, yeah, well, we're getting old, man. Well, yeah. Well, in our first episode, I just checked on the website. Uh, it's almost three years exactly since our first episode when we did St. Anger. Uh, July 29th, 2015, that was. So, that yeah, almost bonkers. exactly three years. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. That's so awesome. here we are, yeah, kicking off another volume. Um, and uh, just to remind uh, anybody listening to this for the first time, I'll say, I'll point out, we have a Patreon. We are entirely supported by our listeners. Uh, we don't do ads or sponsorships or any of that rubbish. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash thrash it out if you like what you hear and you want to support us. And uh, long-time listeners will know, but I'll just remind them that we have switched up our uh, Patreon rewards, the patron perks as we call them, uh, a little bit. So we now have the Listener Poll album, which we'll do halfway through this volume as we normally do. But we also now have our Encore episodes, the first of which we did at the end as the bonus track for Volume 3, which of course was uh, Metallica's Ride the Lightning. Um, And then we have the Backstage Pass episodes, which we will do, uh, you know, two or three more of those uh, during the course of this volume. I haven't done the the randomizer for the next patron that we're going to talk to, but I will do that uh, fairly soon. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll record one of those sometime in the next few months. I will also point out, because I always forget to, that if you want a t-shirt of oh, the yes, Thrash yes. It Out logo with the Goblin Thrash hand uh, horns up in the air, you can get those on Redbubble. And the cool thing about Redbubble is that you can pick not only the style of shirt, but you can also pick from like 15 different colors. And so yes. I've, I've actually bought two different versions of our shirt already. And I was packing for a trip this week and I was packing my thrash it out shirt. So I, but I, I always forget to mention that because, um, because it looks really cool. 
Yeah, I mean, as we've said before, the the T-shirts is, you know, they're there for the fans, basically. We don't make, we hardly make any money off of each shirt, you know, that's not why we do them. Uh, And that's partly why we don't sort of think about, well, we don't often push them. Because then, you know, it's not something that we did to make money. It's just for people who want them because it's pretty cool. Uh, But yeah, I'll put a link to them in the in the show notes for this episode, but they're also in show notes for previous episodes as well. So, but yeah, I'll I'll put that link in there. Awesome. So the uh, the Metallica episode got yes. a lot of feedback. <laughs> Holy moly! I love some of the gifts that people posted, and this is and I'll just say, and, and again, we talked about this before we started recording today. The Facebook community is amazing, and the way that this community comes together and continues to talk about music in between episodes, how they celebrate albums that come out, how they are constantly introducing each other and us to new music or digging up old music or obscure music or kicking off polls about who your favorite drummer is. It doesn't matter. Like, There's so much great discussion that when I went back to look for the feedback on this episode, the Metallica episode, it took forever to find it. Oh, you've got to scroll way, way yeah. down. Yeah, that's like because, five pages below. Oh, the, my God, yeah. <laughs> because there's been so many discussions, long yeah. discussions, detailed discussions between the posting of that episode and now. Uh, yeah. But I well, love... And to be clear, the discussion about the Ride the Lightning episode was long. That, oh, my God. There were a lot of comments, and it's still, yeah, like four or five pages screened down the, down the discussions. Lenny posted that gif of the kid at the Northwestern basketball game, like crying his eyes out and saying, oh my God, when we posted the episode, because (laughs) the cool thing was like we, with the encore episode, we didn't tell anybody. And so it just dropped. And of course, Metallica was one of the most requested, can you guys do a band twice, you know, episodes before. And we had always said that we weren't going to do that. And so uh, the, the encore episodes obviously give us a chance to revisit. And since we started with St. Anger, I mean, people were hungry. <laughs> they were hungry for us to uh, revisit any other album other yeah. than, you know, St. Literally Anger. anything other than St. Anger. <laughs> and, uh, and so we got so, so much feedback. I'll just give you some of the feedback that we got. One of the things that we hit on during that was, you know, for, for some of us, like me, I look at their early albums as when I think of Metallica, that's who I think of. And that was something that we discussed on that show. And uh, Stuart had said, I'm more extreme than Brian. In my universe, Metallica only made four albums. <laughs> they only made four, period. And so uh, there was definitely some early Metallica fans that were on there. Um, let's see. Phil said, number 14 on Phil's 15 favorite metal albums and number two on Phil's most influential metal album. So Phil was in agreement that that was a a very impactful album that fit your theme of you know albums that sort of changed the landscape of music. Uh, yeah. Tony said, probably my favorite Metallica album. Mark said, uh, great episode. Two hours flew by thrilled with the second chance rain in blood, please. He said, uh, completely agree with Brian that this is Metallica's best album. And that James's voice post singing lessons is unlistenable. Uh, keep up the great work and looking forward to the fourth volume. Uh, let's see. Eowyn said for whom the bell tolls is such a great track and definitely a winner of the category of best intro ever in a world where the thing that should not be was never written. You <laughs> <laughs> think that should not be, he's got a pretty good intro, but yeah, I, I will still stand up for, uh, for whom the bell tolls. I just, uh, intro so good, man. So good. You know, if we're giving out, a lot of people give out many awards to Metallica, but if we're giving out awards for bands that have lots of songs that are in the category for 
running for best intro, I would say Metallica is right up there for oh, absolutely, ha- having yeah, yeah. many songs that are potential best intro ever songs. Uh, Kenneth said, great show. It was fun listening to so much enthusiasm. Ride is the third best Metallica album for me after Puppets and Justice. He said, I'm with Brian about forgiving the production. I really dislike Fight Fire with Fire. Never liked the effects on it. It sounds tinny in a way the rest of the album doesn't. Uh, Ride the Lightning is a song I've always found boring, and Escape is okay. The rest of the tracks, though, are easily some of the best metal ever written. Yeah, so I even for people that that's disagree. not their album, you know, they get... Uh, they get they that there are certainly... that it is, yeah, it is a cl- genuinely classic album. There's no, it's one of those, uh, you can't argue, you know, it's like, it's a bit like uh, Black Sabbath's first album. You know, you, you can't argue with its influence and the fact that it is a classic, whether you like it or not. Um, it's just so, well, and I would argue that um, Vogue Display of Power, which we also covered in sure. the last volume, you know, again, it's like, you may like Pantera or not, but you cannot argue that Vulgar Display of Power is not a absolute classic metal album that completely changed the the genre forevermore. It's it uh, did. Um, we had, even though Power Metal's their best album by far, we know that. But that <laughs> yeah. but that's for another. Maybe Apart that's an that. encore. Oh some, god, hmm, man. put that can one you, on my list. Can you imagine? We had uh, dig into a couple of the emails. We had one email about that episode from um, Aaron who said, uh, hey guys, obligatory, I love the show, obviously. Well, thank you, Aaron. I wouldn't say it's obligatory, but thank you anyway. Uh, it says, what a great pick. I'd initially forgotten all about the new rules regarding bonus episodes. So uh, this one seemed to come out of the blue. He says, I've always loved this album, second only to And Justice For All, which blows my mind. If that's your favourite Metallica album, and then Ride the Lightning is your second favourite, that's because to me, those albums are so... Monumentally like, different. It's so, poles apart. That's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Uh, he says, however, Call of Cthulhu is my all-time, all-time favourite metal instrumental. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that necessarily. Um, he says, I'll be lucky if this doesn't leave me listening to nothing but Metallica for the foreseeable future. But there are worse problems to have. Well, I think we can all agree with that. Yeah, we had, uh, Jack uh, had said, and this was an interesting perspective, he said, I know I'm a lot younger than Brian and Anthony, but I always, people, every time they like to point that out, it's, it's like a dagger. Uh, he said, <laughs> he said, but I always forget that so many people are diehard Metallica only made three to five albums, guys. He said, Load, Reload, and even Saint Anger were some of the first Metallica I heard when I was a teenager around 2004, 2005. Uh, again, dagger to the heart. Uh, he said, so it's always interesting uh and it's always inherently been a part of Metallica for me. Jason was also a huge inspiration for me to start playing bass as well. He said, anyway, great episode. I'm really looking forward to more revisits and seeing what else you're going to cover in the future. He said, oh, an escape never truly clicked with me until I heard Gojira cover it. Uh, they covered the song that has never been played live when I first saw them back in 08, and I fell in love. Um Wow. And then our resident, what a strange choice of uh, songs to cover. Yeah, I know, right? And I didn't even know they did that. Um, our resident Metallica super fan Scott said, "So this was unexpected. Great surprise. Love the episode, but I could have done with a little less Mustaine, to be honest." All in all, <laughs> <laughs> he said, "All in all, I agree with you guys that it's a masterpiece. Not my favorite Metallica album, but it's up there." He said, "To me, and Justice for All is their best musically, not production, obviously." Ride the Lightning comes in third for me after Injustice for All and Master of Puppets, followed by Death Magnetic. Uh, 
and then the and then some of the other ones he listed there. So uh, interesting I perspective am, from him. I'm genuinely surprised at how many people because you know those were by no means the only examples as well. The number of people for whom their favorite Metallica album is Unjustice for All. Uh, now I'm not I'm not saying that. Justice is a bad album necessarily, but to my ears, and not just because of the production, even the songwriting is, yeah, just like nowhere near as good as Lightning or Puppets. Well, when was Injustice? Was it 88 Injustice for All? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. 87 or 88. Yeah. You know, for me, that's freshman year of high school, right? And so I wonder when it comes Uh, to a band like Metallica that has spanned decades, I wonder if the album that landed at the time in your life where you probably had the most time to listen to music or were like super passionate or the first time in your life that you were like just all about music. I I wonder if that becomes, because I'm sure that was the black album for some, like I had pe- oh, people yeah, who were yeah. a few years behind me in school who that was the black album for them. Right. And so that well, it's became, like that, that whole thing, not just with metal, but music in general, they say that, uh, you know, there's a common belief that basically the music you listen to, in your uh, early 20s, in your late teens, sure. going into early 20s, is basically that defines your musical taste pretty much for the rest of your life. Yep. Um, I'm not, I don't put a, a massive amount of stock in that because personally, you know, I was, I'm still a huge fan of like 80s era new romantic and synth pop and stuff like that, you know, and I was, I was not a late teenager, you know, I'm not that old, um, when that stuff was around. So yeah, I I don't know, but there is at the same time, there's no denying that my favorite period of metal is the mid nineties. And in the mid nineties, I was in my early twenties. So, you know, maybe there is something to it. And for me, it was, it was the eighties because my whole musical, and the ghost album is really bringing that up for me now, but my whole like musical blueprint, that's embedded in my brain is MTV is right. the early days of MTV where, where the genres blurred and everything was played together and you went from pop to metal to, you know, that kind of, and so it was, there's just a, there's a lot of overlap there, but yeah. But see, that's what, just as a digression, that's why to, to my mind anyway, that's one of the reasons why I liked the mid nineties so much. Like, it's not like I just got into metal in the mid nineties sure. as we've talked about before, but to me, one of the reasons I like that period so much is because that span of like the very late eighties, literally like, you know, 89 to 90 through till about 95, 96 was so full of innovation and crossover within the metal space. Like, you know, starting with the the sort of the industrial, the rise of the industrial movement um, through the sort of rock and roll influences of bands like Metallica and even heavier bands like uh, Entombed and stuff, getting rock and roll, really bluesy influences in. And then through stuff like White Zombie, where you had industrial mixed with groove and then Pantera obviously blowing up with, you know, groove influence metal, uh, Fear Factory taking the sort of industrial thing to its metal extreme, all of these, this massive crossover. And of course it led into new metal, which is, you know, kind of the ultimate metal crossover genre. Um, There was so much of that uh, other genres influencing metal and bands kind of absorbing that and then putting their own stamp on it, regurgitating it with their own uh, sensibilities on top of it. And I don't want to sound like an old fart, but that, <laughs> see, that seemed to die out towards the end of the 90s, um, kind of with the rise of new metal, actually. New metal kind of, as I say, that was like the ultimate version of that. But when that became 
so huge, it seemed to sort of, all the other innovations kind of seem to die off a little bit. And I think we've seen pockets of that coming back over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that it's as much of a melting pot as it was in the 90s. Uh, and I feel that's like why the that difference- period for me is so why I love it. Cause I, you know, I, I have such ridiculously sort of strange eclectic tastes all sure. over the place that I love the idea of all these genres kind of butting heads. And I think for me, it feels like that, that heyday ended like seven years earlier, because I think what, as you were sort of experiencing that, that crossover and sort of new creation, what it felt like for me is that that stuff was happening at the cost of the music that I loved. And so, you know, there was this great culling that happened in the early 90s where bands that weren't Metallica and bands that weren't um, some of these big, you know, Nirvana or these bands that were able to weather that change in landscape and still maintain some semblance of their, you know, identity. And and you could argue some of them didn't retain a semblance of their identity. They changed with, with the landscape. Like hair metal pretty much died, right? Which was my, my bread and butter. Uh, that, you know, there are bands in uh, on the podcast I do with Matt, the Power Chords, when we talk a lot about these bands who came in at the end of the 80s and their debut album happened to hit a few years late. And because of that, they really only got their debut album out. And by the time they got their second album out, the landscape had completely changed underneath them. And it's a fascinating time for that. But, um, but the same thing with, you know, uh, one of my biggest memories as a metal fan is at being at Lake Compounds in Connecticut and watching the Clash of the Titans tour in 1991 on my birthday and seeing Alice in Chains get booed off the stage. And then two years later, realizing that Alice in Chains was bigger than the other bands that were at the Clash of the Titans, which were Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. Yeah. Within two years, Alice in Chains was bigger than the bands that were the biggest you know, and so yep. it was just so surreal to me, and that that is like a memory forever embedded in my brain is just that that could, the tables completely flipped, and so for me, like that period ended for me. I mean, I graduated in '92 from high school, and I feel like my freshman year of school, like '93, things were still there was still some signs of life from that '80s era music, but as you know, as the early '90s went on there a lot of those a lot of that music died in order for the new music to begin and that's the difference i think from when for example in the early 80s in the in the heyday of mtv's beginnings i feel like that stuff coexisted in a way that there was crossover and there was new stuff happening but it wasn't killing the stuff before it and i feel like in the early 90s it cannibalized the stuff before it in order to become something new and so that's and that may just be how i remember it but i i feel like that transition and that sort of crossover and melting pot was more amicable in the 80s. Right. And in the 90s, it was more divisive and violent. <laughs> well, know, where- the, the 90s was merciless. The early 90s, absolutely. Yeah, it was really, you know, if you were a hair metal band, you were in, and you couldn't change, you were in serious trouble, just, you know, purely in business terms. Um, the early 80s had punk. So, which, you know, was equally ruthless. Like the punk killed a lot of bands from the seventies. But obviously punk wasn't strictly metal uh, and punk, you know, as a genre, sui generis just kind of died. Uh, It it wasn't very long lived. So I think you're right that it was the melting pot was a bit more amicable for metal in the eighties, but that's partly because we'd already had a cull (laughs) in the late seventies and very early eighties, thanks to punk. And then, you know, new romantic becoming like the, 
And I know that obviously are not metal, but that became the music that everybody wanted to listen to in the early 80s. Uh, and metal very much kind of uh, went back underground. You know, rock music really kind of went back underground until the, the rise in the mid 80s of those sort of, you know, not just hair metal, but the more sort of like pop metal kind of bands that found their way into the charts. And suddenly, obviously, from there, it exploded. It's a fascinating uh, development, you know, the boom and bust cycle almost. Oh, of, my God. Uh, yeah. And metal. then like picking out individual bands during that time who were caught up or crushed by those waves of change is like one of the most yeah. fascinating rabbit holes for me to continually go down <laughs> with. It's one of the reasons I love to talk about music, because there there is so many examples of that. And and then when you look back now at those decades and now that we have sort of history you can look back and see which ones were able to reinvent themselves, which ones were able to come out relatively unscathed, you know, that, and, and which that ones were so really, really sort of unfairly dealt with, you know, you, there's some, you go, but you listen to them and you think, my God, this is great. Like, you know, but they fell victim to tastes and fashion. Uh, and so, and th- so that was it, you know, and you only get one album out of them, which is a well, real or- shame. Or being miscategorized right by your record label or your agent or the music industry at the time to fit into something that you really weren't, and then that yep. thing dies. And look yep. at you look at a band like um, like Skid Row is a great example of that, right? When yes. you look at Skid Row, Skid Row gets thrown into the hair metal category, and their first album you could maybe, but the first album is amazing, but you could maybe say, yeah, they kind of fit within that. You listen to Slave to the Grind and you listen to uh, the third album is escaping me right now, but the third album is Borderline Thrash. The second album, Slave to the Grind, is very, very heavy and fit very well with sort of the early 90s sound. But because Skid Row came in at the end of the hair metal era, they couldn't. They couldn't escape it. They couldn't get people to pay attention to them. And so, and there's a lot of these bands that just got bad advice, got miscategorized, and got caught up and crushed as things changed out from under them. Now there is somewhat of a resurgence of that stuff coming back now, because all of us that are in our forties and have more disposable income and can support those bands again. I mean, that, that is kind of a good segue into what my theme for this season is, because for people who listen yes. to last volume, you uh, had the theme of, you know, albums that changed the landscape albums that were important to music for one reason or another. My, theme for this particular volume of thrashed out is respect your elders because i feel <laughs> like a lot of times we're losing that perspective or or some of these bands have been sort of lost in the larger conversations and so that's kind of the theme i'm going with this season which is one of the reasons that i chose overkill as the first band that i wanted to visit for this volume of right, out. in that theme. Yeah. So, okay. So building on that, but also, uh, you were talking about sort of, you know, adapting to changing taste. And I was going to say, that's one of the reasons why, uh, a band, you know, like motorhead sort of earn respect because they just didn't, <laughs> they would like, no, you know, a bit like Slayer, you know, they were Absolutely, just like, no, right? no, fuck, fuck you. This is what we do. And you either like it or you don't. Um, but that also, uh, takes me to, uh, the other email that I wanted to read out, which is from, uh, new listener, I think Chris Powell, uh, who has popped up on the Facebook page, but I think, I'm pretty sure he's a new listener. And he mailed us after listening to the, he says, I listened to the Halloween and Motorhead episodes back to back and thought I would give you guys a link between the two bands, which is Mickey D, Motorhead's drummer, was the session drummer 
on a Halloween's record, Rabbit Don't Come Easy. Uh, this was after Ulai Kush, who was the drummer in uh, Halloween after Ingo uh, left, but before Ingo died, possibly, I'm not sure. Uh, and Roland Grappau, the guitarist, both left Halloween after a record they did called The Dark Ride, which actually is pretty good. Uh, you know, for latter-day Halloween, it's probably their best one. Um uh, and for this next album, Rabbit Don't Come Easy, yeah, they hired Mickey D as their session drummer. Um, and <laughs> you can tell he put a couple of links to, um, you know, YouTube um, videos of the the tracks, that some of the tracks that he's on. And you can tell, you can immediately go, oh, yeah, that's Mickey. <laughs> it's just well, this he's currently insane, with the Scorpions, right? Yeah, yeah, this just insane drumming, just, oh, yeah, nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. But what a great connection. And yeah, you know, that obviously ties into Elders as well, because both Motorhead and Halloween, you know, are sort of, well, Motorhead no more, but, you know, grand old um, uh, troopers of the metal scene, if you like. And Halloween, you know, I, I would be the first to admit they are not what they used to be. But just the fact that they're still going is kind of amazing. 100%. I, you have to respect the durability of some of these bands through lineup changes, through musical landscape changes. And and so, yeah, that that is definitely something I want to explore this season. And you mentioned Slayer. And obviously, if you pay attention to the Facebook page, then you have seen me post pictures and videos of the Slayer Farewell Tour show that I went to on oh, the yeah. 1st of June, which was not, not even a week ago now. And what is, man, it, 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 it really dawned on me. I've always respected Slayer. And we can talk about Slayer's musical style as we get into Overkill in a little bit too. But but clearly, you know, you draw the parallel to Motorhead, and that's completely apt because they are a band who, for the most part, maybe save for one or two albums, haven't chased the trends, have always been Slayer. You know what to expect from them, and I think even more consistently from a live standpoint, have always been extremely consistent in terms of their live performances. And and that was one thing that that made me respect Motorhead, even though at the time that I first saw them, I wasn't the biggest fan of Motorhead. Seeing Motorhead play live and seeing their workmanlike consistency after seeing them a couple times, like I just had such a sax and I was another one I would throw into that. But Slayer, I went and saw them on, on, you know, Friday. They are as good live as they have ever been live. And they're in their farewell tour and they're going to retire Slayer being one of the best and most consistent live bands ever. And that yep. is super, super, super impressive. Like nobody every ever saw, song. Nobody ever saw Kerry King walk out on stage wearing a flannel shirt, you know? <laughs> no, man. And, and the thing is, like, he just comes out and goes to work, right? Yeah. Um, their, their interaction with the crowd, very Lemmy-like, you know, not a lot of talking. You know, famously, I, I said before, like, Lemmy came out and said, we are Motorhead and we're going to clean your clock. And that was the only thing he said to the crowd pretty much the whole night. Right. Then the they first just time play. I ever saw them. And they just play one song after another. And I think, I want to say, I have to look back at the set list, but Slayer, I think they played 19 songs. And it was just one after another after another. Once or twice, Tom came out while well, I'm assuming people were getting a drink of water or something. And, you know, basically said, hey, is everybody having fun tonight? How are you guys doing tonight? You know, we're, this is our farewell tour or whatever. And the crowd went wild. But other than that, song after song after song after song. And it is, uh, it's impressive to see that level of consistency over pretty much four decades now. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh, okay. So be, just quickly before I'll finish off, before we get to talking about Overkill, uh, we have a couple of new patrons since the last episode. Uh, somebody calling themselves Marwee. M A R 
capital W E. Uh, I could not figure out what your real name is uh, from your Patreon. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but welcome. And Retro Blasting, which I presume is Melinda Mock, who uh, is. we mentioned, uh, you know, a, an episode or two ago uh, from doing that um, 80s, well, the Retro Blasting podcast, which you've now started listening to pretty much all the I time. Have, I have, and there may be a crossover in the works coming oh, up really? uh, pretty soon because uh, she reached out to me. And so uh, more details to that uh, about ah, that in the future. But uh, but yeah, I, I do that podcast clearly in my wheelhouse. And, yeah. Uh, they have quite the attention to detail on that show too, which I appreciate. They do a lot of research for whatever topic they are sort of tackling. And um, yeah, right. it's great. Well, and right, and also talking about sort of slightly retro uh, stuff, just one last plug. I released a new album uh, not long after the last episode, actually, so it's been out for a few weeks now, um, which is a new Silencion album, which is uh, my instrumental side project stuff, uh, called Dead, Ch- Dead Channel, and it's music inspired by William Gibson's classic cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, uh, and it is very sort of 80s tinged i mean it's not you know it doesn't sound like it was made in the 80s but i think i think because you've heard it you'd agree that it's it's very sort of 80s influenced uh and if you want to go and grab that you can uh, just go to my website and you'll find a link or you can go directly to silencion.bandcamp.com and it'll be there and that's s-i-l-e-n-c-a-e-o-n i really should have picked a better more easily spelled <laughs> name for but my I, side I am, project <laughs> i am so glad that you brought that up and i can't believe uh, that it ca- it happened after the last episode. I forgot about that, but you you had shared that with me a couple days before it had actually gone before it went you know, live. Yeah. And I think I you know hit you back immediately on Slack and was like, dude, this is amazing. Like I love that album. Clearly, the '80s influence, the the Neuromancer, it you know inspiration. It is like you made that album for me, and I I love listening to your stuff when I write. And that album is like so perfect for pretty much everything I write. And uh, it's just fantastic. So if people haven't checked it out yet, you absolutely need to go and check that out uh, because it is fantastic. Bless you. Bless you. All right. So uh, let us talk about Overkill. Um, I will say that to nobody's great surprise, I'm sure. I'd heard of Overkill. Of course I had. You know, they're always in the conversation about the so-called Big Five and that sort uh-huh. of thing. Um, but I was not overly familiar with their stuff. Like, I know I've heard tracks of theirs in the past on MTV, as you you know, Headbangers Ball, that sort of thing. Um, but I couldn't have told you a single one of them. And I think it suddenly occurred to me earlier today, only earlier today, that I think somebody gave me a cassette of one of their old albums. The one with... I was going to say it had a green cover, but that doesn't narrow it down. With is it, is it horoscope? It might have been. Is that the one with a skull with like spikes? Well, sticking yeah. Out I of mean, it? there there's more than one with that, but yes, I believe one of the covers for horoscope has sort of a circular cover with the spikes uh, sticking yes, out of it. Yes, that's the and, one. Yeah. Uh, many people, when they find out that we are going to talk about Overkill, will probably assume that that is the album that we are going to talk about. Is that right? So is that, that's regarded as like their classic. Or they're kind of, I'm trying to think of an equivalent, you know. It's sort of their turning point, but it's considered to be one of their classic albums because that was the first album, if I'm not mistaken. And and I will say that unlike, say, Megadeth, for example, I'm not an Overkill historian, but in general, the history of Overkill is that prior to 1990, uh, 
the guitarist and songwriter Bobby Gustafson was a very central part of the band. And there was there, there's this split between him and Dee Dee Verney, who is the bass player and the primary songwriter of Overkill for pretty much everything since then. This Horoscope album was the first album to not feature Bobby Gustafson. Right. And so there are, it, it's not as drastic as sort of the, the Mustaine Metallica split where people are fans of either this or this, but there is definitely, to what I've seen, a very, a very strong division in the overkill community of things that Gustafson was involved with and then everything post him. And oh, so there are, there is definitely sort of a division there. And so the two consistent members of overkill have been D.D. Verney, who is the the bassist and lead songwriter, and uh, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth, who is the lead vocalist and also songwriter for the band. And so they are sort of, um, you know, as the story goes, when there was division within the band, Blitz sided with D.D. Verney, and they pretty much kicked Gustafson out of the band. And that's, you know, that was that. And so since that time, there's been a lot of uh, rotating band members that have come through on guitar or on uh, drums, although from, I believe, 2005 until 2017, they had a very stable period where they had uh, Dee Dee Verney, Bobby Blitz, uh, Dave Linsk on guitar, Derek Trailer on guitar, and then uh, the former drummer, Ron Lipnicki, was on drums from 2005 through 2016. And then 2017 forward, is Jason Bittner. I think that Lipnicki played on the grinding wheel though, and I will double check that. Yeah, that was his last album with them. And so they had a period of long stability and then they just got a new drummer. But right. lineup changes are not something that uh, Overkill is unfamiliar with. They have definitely had some lineup <laughs> changes over the years, but you know, you mentioned that they get thrown into conversations about, well, the big five, the big six, the big seven, just to kind of give it some perspective. And these numbers are never they're never to be trusted because record sale numbers are always uh, inaccurate. But in general, you have a band like Metallica who has sold over 125 million albums worldwide. I'm sure it's much more than that now because some of these numbers are a bit old. You have a Megadeth who has sold over 50 million albums worldwide, right? You have Slayer, who it's really hard to pin down, but it seems like they're in the low 20s. As far as album sales, uh, 20 millions. Anthrax is around 15-ish for worldwide album sales. Testament, 16 million. I mean, uh, not Testament, Overkill, 16 I was going to say, te- wow. <laughs> no, Testament is 12 to 13. I right, did look up Testament too. Yeah. So you have Testament, who's 12 to 13. You have Anthrax, who's around 15, probably 16 now. You have Overkill, who as a few years ago was at 16 million worldwide. And then Slayer in the 20s, Metallica 50, uh, I mean, uh, Megadeth 50, Metallica well over right. Metallica is the million. big dog, yeah. You know, Metallica yeah. could be up to 140 million now. Yeah. There, yeah. There's a big drop-off between Metallica and everybody else. But when you get past Megadeth and you get to Slayer, Anthrax, Overkill is right there as yeah. far as worldwide album sales. They have been around since 1980. They have 18, I believe, studio albums that they have put out. They just put out a live album about two weeks ago where I believe it's them playing their first two albums live completely. Um, I think it was a double album that just came out. I haven't listened to it yet, but they have been around for a long time. They are East Coasters. They're from New Jersey. And so their influences, which I think you can hear very clearly, um, are more, <laughs> are more. Uh, they sound like an East Coast band. Uh, I just watched a video the other day where Bobby Blitz was talking about his vocal influences 
or or not even necessarily vocal, but the lead singers that he, you know, um, tried to model himself after: Freddie Mercury, Dee Snider, mm-hmm. Iggy Pop, Alice Cooper, and he also gave a shout out to James Hetfield in terms of stage presence in that particular video. But uh, I think you can see a lot of Dee Snider and a lot of Twisted Sister in Overkill. But that's that's just me. But again. Twisted Sister, I can see a New that. Jersey band, right? R- right, Long yeah, Island. I mean, another East Coaster. I can see that, but also I would say the the singer, the vocalist that he reminds me of the most, and not that this was necessarily an influence, but that he kind of, you know, talking about, you say he sounds like an East Coaster. But, right, the, as soon as he started singing, when I first listened to this album, I was like, oh, it's Exodus all over again. Uh, yes, and, I th- and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that, people tend to lump him in with Steve Souza and nothing against Steve Souza's vocals. As we talked about on the Exodus episode, I like Steve Souza. He's my favorite Exodus singer. And I, I appreciate what he brings to that band. I personally feel like Blitz has a much greater range and is a well, better singer. I was going to say of all of the goblin singers, <laughs> as it were, that we've heard, uh, he definitely has the actual voice. To back it up more than and they any of the others, I would say. Yeah, and he does right? use it on this album. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so that that's what I like about Overkill. Do you know who he sounds like to me when he sings clean? Jeff Tate. It's so funny you mention that. Get your Queensryche bingo cards out. There is a particular <laughs> song. There's a song. I'll have to wait till we get to it. I, I swear I made a note about Queensryche somewhere on this album. Oh, we'll get to um, it. We'll get to it. And it's like warning era Queensryche uh that we talked about there, but yeah, I think, I think that this band and this fits in with my respect your elders theme. I do not feel that overkill gets near the amount of respect that they deserve for a being super consistent, B their just longevity and, and being around when all of these other bands were around there. The fact that they have sold 16 million albums worldwide and are right there toe to toe with members of the big four and everybody that comes after in the discussion of the big four, I just don't feel like they get the credit that they deserve for being one of these godfathers of thrash metal. And they are right there. Um, But they're also extremely different. Like I would put these guys in a category. I would say if they, if they come close to anybody in terms of style, it is anthrax. But the part of them that overlaps is that East coast almost sense of humor and not taking yourself too seriously, sensibility that I feel like Anthrax has that neither Metallica, Slayer, or Megadeth have in that. Anthrax was always sort of the court jester of the group. I feel like um, that had that New York feel and and would do things that were riskier than the other bands. And I feel like Overkill has that has some of that swagger too, that East Coast swagger, and that's one of the things that I like about them. But they, musically, I feel like they're very different from the rest of the the bands that they're often compared to. And I would put them in a category with like suicidal tendencies. I feel like when you think, think yeah, about I suicidal, you're that, like, yeah. man, suicidal's in that conversation with everybody else, but they're so different than all of those other bands. And I feel like Overkill is also very different than those bands because they don't, they're not as straight ahead as those bands. And there's, there's plenty of songs on this album where they make choices that uh, these other bands would not make in songs yeah, in directions I mean, they go yeah and you can argue whether or not that's a you know a good thing Correct. necessarily uh yes. because this album does have 
I think problems that could have been, you know, avoided. Uh, but as you say, they, you know, they've been doing this so long that they're clearly doing it the way they wanted. They self-produced this album as well. Andy Sneap and it mixed it, and you can tell. Oh <laughs> hell yes, you can. Uh, but but they did self-produce it, and you know, I personally think that wasn't necessarily the best decision. But as I say, again, you've got to kind of give it up for a band that is so has been going for so long and is so sure of themselves. So kind of, we know exactly what we're about that they have the confidence to do that. Even if, you know, the end result, you can, you can like it more or, or less. Um, it's kind of difficult for me because I'm so just not familiar with their earlier stuff. And this is obviously such a later album. If they, uh, and I did go back and listen to a few of the older tracks again. And like I said, I didn't recognize a single one. I'm like, I'm sure I've heard this band before, but I just cannot remember any of their songs. If they sounded like this in the 80s and 90s, then absolutely. They would have sounded very different to all of those uh, other bands in the sort of big four in the thrash arena. But obviously, I don't know how much they've evolved necessarily over time because there are many tracks on this album that to me have a very groove metal feel to them. And I don't know whether that obviously is an influence from the 90s onwards, if that's something they picked up or something that they had to start with. Um, the the one thing yeah. I will say is that where they don't have that is in Blitz's vocals, which are absolutely East Coast Anthrax style. Uh, and unfortunately, a style that I'm not that keen on you know i sure. said before joey belladonna i cannot stand his vocals i do not like anthrax when he's in the band um so that kind of you know that plays against them for me unfortunately but musically sure. uh yeah you know they do sound very different to at least how those bands sounded back in the day well, and they are heavily, heavily influenced by Motorhead, hence the name of yes. the band, which yes. is a direct nod to Motorhead. Um, Although, again, you wouldn't, I'm not sure you'd necessarily know. Like, if I, I feel I, like, see, I feel like it is, but you know Motorhead better than I do. But I, I feel, to me, Overkill feels much more like a Motorhead-ish, Twisted Sister-ish bar band than any of these arena sort of band qualities okay, yeah, of the I'll big give you four. That. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. are guys that you just, uh, you would be sitting next to them at the bar and not realizing they're the band that's playing in 10 minutes. You know right. what I mean? But and musically, then, there's one track on here that has the D beat, which is the characteristic uh, beat that Discharge, hence it's called the D beat, um, popularized a motorhead, then proceeded to use throughout pretty much all of their career. Um, you know, that drumming rhythm. Other than that, if it weren't for that, there's musically, there's almost nothing on here that reminds me of Motorhead, apart from the fact that the bass is like the loudest thing in the mix. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. Uh, maybe uh, uh, Being a bass lover, like, and if you are a bass-loving metal fan, which is hard to be, because most metal bands could give a shit about the bass, but especially when it comes to mixing their albums, this is one band that you're going to hear the hell out of the bass in every single Whether song. Whether you want to or not. Oh my God, I want it. I Give me more. Uh, and there are some, there are a couple of bass lines in this album that are just absolute, absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. So again, that all contributes to, and of course, when your bass player is your lead songwriter, then you're going to yep. have a band that <laughs> prioritizes bass, but their influences too, even for who they chose to do a cover of on the last song of this album, clearly. Indeed. Um, 
Yeah, Motorhead, Thin Lizzy, you know, bass-led bands. Oh, dude. Like, but but it felt like, and we can talk about that when we get to it, but it felt right to me. It it just felt like, it felt right for this album and it felt right for this band that that was the the band and the song that they chose to cover on this album. And so, yeah, I I think Overkill, I think very blue-collar, you know, whereas for me, like Megadeth is almost like a nerdy, uh, there's a there's a there's like a scientific quality to it, you know, like we've talked about before right, that, yeah. that I get out of Megadeth. Megadeth like, this is chess club. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like for me, Overkill is just like it, it is your jean jacket patch on the back, CD bar band goes on at midnight, thrash metal band who just continue to be there putting out music. And the interesting thing is, this album was their highest, uh, second highest charting album. And I forget exactly where it landed. I, I want to say like I don't know, like sixty nine or something on the on the Billboard chart. But the album before this, White Devil Armory, which I almost chose for this one, uh, was their highest charting album. And so here is another band that has been around for four decades, who is putting out critically and commercially some of the most well received music of their entire career. So and, here's a question for you: Why did you choose? Uh, a later album like this as opposed to say an album like horoscope that is a fantastic question and i i feel like because this chip on my shoulder i have about sort of respecting your elders and and you know giving credit where credit is due part of me wants to show people that these guys are still doing it that they're still doing it in 2017 and they're in the studio right now as we speak today recording the show they are in the studio recording their new album, which will be out in early 2019. That will be album 19 for them. Uh, so they, like the Exodus album that we did. Yes, Because, dude. you know, if there's one thing that that album showed, it's that Exodus are still Holy fucking shit, right? heavy. <laughs> exactly. And I and that's like, like, I feel like we need to say to people, like, yeah, these guys are still here. They're still great. They're still putting out fantastic music they're still performing i saw them for the first time uh i want to say in march of last year or something for the very first time saw them live freaking awesome in concert and uh, i was so mad that i hadn't gotten a chance to see them earlier this was a this was a band that and part of this is is a mea culpa for me in not giving these bands uh for some of them that we'll talk about this volume the the credit that they deserved back in the day i knew of Overkill. I listened to Overkill, but I never collected all of Overkill's albums. I never spoke of them as one of my favorite bands. And this is another band who, in my later years, I have gone back and really started to mine that back catalog of music and just really understand how fantastic they are. And the fact that they're still doing it and they're still putting out these albums is just amazing to me. And I also feel like as compared to um at least the White Devil Armory, which I was going to do, I feel like this one's a little bit more diverse. And so there's some some interesting sort of choices to talk about on this album. But Horoscope would have probably been my second choice. If you were going to do a, an earlier album. Sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. I think it's worth emphasizing for, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what the average age of our listeners is. I think most of our listeners are probably... Uh, you know, close to your and my age, although I think, you know, you and I are actually older than probably most people who listen to the show. But I know we do also have some younger listeners as well. And it's it's difficult sometimes 
to uh, make the younger listeners uh, realize like this stuff's really fucking hard when you're 50, 55, 60 years old. Like it's, it's hard to make them realize, you know, your body starts falling apart and you have perpetual aches and pains in places you never totally. imagined you would have them. Uh, you're tired all the fucking time. It's really, really hard yeah. to maintain those sort of levels of energy that I mean, any I'll be 44 rock band does. In July. Right. I'll right. be 44 I'm, in July, and I already have those aches and pains Yeah, oh, at I'm, 44. I'm 46 in a couple of months. And <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, there's no way that I could get up on stage, you know, five nights a week for two hours and run around and put on a show like these guys do. Now, okay, they've been doing it for 40 years, so they know how to do it, but that's not the point. Trust me. <laughs> you know, it's this shit is hard. Uh, so I think that's another thing that you have to realize when you're talking about respecting your elders is that it becomes exponentially harder to do this stuff well, live, especially when, when you reach the sorts of ages that these bands are reaching. And that is one of the two main themes that I believe that this album explores conceptually. Really? Do you think? Yeah, because the first one that immediately jumped out at me is it's about the war machine, right? It's It's about war and the grind and, you know, chewing up young kids and spitting them back out. And then sometimes what you come back to when you come back from combat and stuff like that. I feel like there's a lot of themes on this album about that and some of them are woven better together than others but i feel like there's a lot of uh there's a lot of that but then i also feel like this album is a little bit autobiographical in terms of the grind of the road and the grind That's of more what i got from it yeah. yeah yeah being a band that has done this for four decades being a band that has the integrity to come out every night and give you the best show that they can possibly give you and to not take any nights off and how and what that does to you. And, but what it means to go into battle with those guys that are part of the band and, uh, and to go out every night and and put it all out there on the stage. And so I, to me, like there's sort of a dual um, sort of uh, whichever storyline you, you choose to, to sort of ascribe to the album, but definitely some pretty strong themes, I think uh, on this one for sure. I think, yeah, I definitely got the, as you say, the autobiographical life on the road kind of thing, which again is another favorite subject of Motorhead. Um, I did feel that it got a bit repetitive after a while, a bit samey. Um, I, unusually, reading the lyrics to this after, you know, I listened to it a few times, just sort of, you know, listening to it straight without reading anything and then thought, okay, right now let's listen along with the lyrics. I, I actually kind of preferred it more before... <laughs> before I read the lyrics, like without reading the lyrics, because they are, it's when, only when you read them, you're like, oh, wow, with this again. Um, whereas like rhythmically, his voice, I mean, his voice isn't my favorite style, as we've talked before, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Goblin Thrash sound, but uh, he uses it well, he really can sing, and rhythmically, he's got great control over it, you know, and he chooses his rhythms in interesting ways. But the actual lyrics, <clears throat> I, I, most of them I could live without, <laughs> to be honest with you. I, yeah, I mean, I, uh, the thing that I would say about this album in terms of lyrics, and, and you could certainly probably ascribe it to, to their other albums as well, is I think thematically they're more ambitious than they are well executed. 
You know what I mean? Like there's concepts that they keep hitting on, but maybe not in a diverse enough way so that it feels like it gets redundant at times. And there, there definitely is that I think on some of the songs here, I think that the music makes up for it in a lot of those cases. And, and maybe that's why you kind of preferred it before you dug into the, you know, into the lyrics. I I would kind of agree with that. I, uh, I'll, I'll say this now. I'm going to leave this to the end, but I'll say this now, since I were talking about it, I would like, I think I would like this band a lot more with a different vocalist which I know is ridiculous because that would never happen. It's impossible. Sure. It wouldn't be the same band, but I would be genuinely inter- genuinely interested to see what would happen if you took the instrumental tracks off this album, take all the, the tracks as they exist, turn down the bass a little bit, uh, and then give them to somebody like John Bush or Phil Anselmo even to write uh-huh. completely new lyrics and vocals. Because musically, I think this is... A strong album. It's you know it has problems, but it is overall, I think, a very strong musically album. But yeah, the the vocals are kind of a real you know my, vocals and lyrics basically are a kind of real minus point for me, unfortunately. All right, I'll hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I will let that land. I um, I also just think that the the I mean this is. So th- this is an 11 song album. It is 65 minutes and in my opinion, just too long for it. Like apart from the cover of Emerald right at the end, there is not a single track on here that is less than four minutes and 50 seconds. And half, half of the tracks on here are over six minutes, which is not, this is what I mean about like, that is not the way a motorhead album <laughs> would go, you know? No, but I think that, and I'm going to go back and look. I, I think almost every track on this album would be improved by. No, no, no. Off, I'm, I'm talking about their style. I, if I'm oh, not I mistaken, right, right. I believe that is fairly, fairly common for overkill. They is run it? on the right. long side. Right. Um, on their very first album, you have a 645 and a 707 song. Um, Let's just see what Horoscope has, because I thought that had a few long ones as well. Uh, Horoscope, let's see, right here. So for Horoscope, you have uh, 617, 549, 525, 523. Yeah, maybe this album is a little bit longer in the tooth, but I, I think on White Devil Armory, their previous one as well, there was definitely some longer songs, so I don't, I don't think they're averse to going the long route, and in that way, a little bit Metallica-ish. Do you know what I mean? Where they they tend to, uh, they tend to stretch out in some in some of their songs. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, no, you're right. Absolutely, Metallica are kind of guilty of this in some cases as well. Although, you know, I think it's notable that. Uh, you know, one of Metallica's most popular periods is when they weren't doing that and they were oh, absolutely shortening their songs, you know, uh, and that may not be the period as we talked about that most sort of, you know, metal lovers and thrash purists regard as their classic stuff, but it was absolutely their most, uh, commercially successful yeah, and still had great songs, you know, proving that you can still make a great song without needing it to be six or seven minutes. And I think when we're talking about producers, I think that's the issue here. I kind of, and it's I don't a little self-indulgent. Right. I don't know whether somebody like Andy Sneap would necessarily have been the guy to go, guys, can we cut a minute off this song? Because he tends to be more of a, okay, tell me what you're going to do and I'll capture it. And he does that yes. brilliantly, you know, not knocking that at all. Um, but I do think there, there would be for, a, you know, 
some well, like volume. if a Bob Rock came in, right? right. He would have been, he yeah. would have been like, guys, uh, this is too if long. This is ever going to get on the radio. <laughs> we need to cut three minutes out of it. And well, or even know. not even worrying about the radio because let's face it, you know, this band aren't going to get on the radio, and that's fine, and nothing wrong with that. But just as a listener, there are some of these tracks where I'm kind of halfway through and like, oh god, we're only halfway through. <laughs> well, and some of the choices that they make. Uh, are choices that even I don't agree with as someone who absolutely adores this album. And and but the thing that I always go back to is, man, I would take this section out because it just feels like it doesn't fit perfectly in this. But then again, that is inherently part of who Overkill is. And when you start doing that so that it will sound more right, like then other it's people, not them. Yeah. then it's not overkill anymore. And that's so so this this almost like kind of swing groove style that they put in in the middle of a song where like Megadeth wouldn't do that or Slayer wouldn't do that or whatever. They almost um, But that's why they're overkill. Yeah. It's like exactly. I said about, you know, they about getting seem it. to me are the, they are the uh in some ways the polar opposite of Slayer. And this was a discussion that came up on our Facebook group sometime in the last week. And it was someone saying, "Man, uh, when it comes to Slayer, I feel essentially I'm paraphrasing. It, it, I feel like I'm just waiting for the one good part of that song when I'm listening to Slayer, right? I'm listening to that one riff where uh, three quarters of the way through the song, I'm going to get 45 seconds of one of the most amazing riffs I've ever heard in my life when they go into this breakdown. And then it'll go back to like sounding like every other Slayer song and, you know, or, or, or something like that. And so it, for a lot of people who listen to Slayer, they like parts of many Slayer songs, but they don't like Slayer's music in general. You know what I mean? Right. And so I feel like Overkill are the opposite of that. They have songs that for 85% of them are this killer thrash song with killer riffs and the main riff is great. And then they make a choice somewhere in the song that for a lot of people takes them out of that song completely. And they're like, well, this song was, was crappier for this choice that they made in the middle of it. So I find them to be almost a contrast to Slayer in that Slayer, you're sort of waiting for the center of the Tootsie Roll pop. When are they <laughs> going to get to that part in the song that I, that just clicks with me when I'm like, holy shit, like this is amazing. Uh, and for Overkill, it's almost like, when are they going to take that weird turn? That it's more like a hair in your ice cream. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and I think that, that to me is what, makes those bands very different, but also kind of makes them who they are. Because right. Slayer is Slayer because they make you work for it sometimes. They make you work for that part of the song that you're going to be like, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, but that's what and, I said about replacing, you know, sort of the the fantasy of getting, a, you know, the instrumental tracks with a different vocalist. Like I say, of course that wouldn't happen because once you do that, it's no longer them. Exactly. It's, it's not and, the band. And if Overkill was the only band you could ever listen to for your entire life, then yes, you would want them to conform to or to fit within what your most pleasurable right. listening but, of this type of music is. But the fact that we have this Baskin-Robbins of bands where you have <laughs> your Metallica and your Slayer and your... That's what makes the Big Four so great, right? Is that they're yep. so musically diverse. Like, you can get... Your nerd None of them sound Megadeth. anything like the others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can get your your uh, more sort of rock and roll metal from Metallica. You can get your um, your sort of uh, New York hardcore metal from Anthrax, and then you can get your straight up punch you in the mouth thrash metal from Slayer. And so, 
that's what I love about these. And, and I'm sure when we get into Testament at some point, it'll be a similar conversation of like, what, is, what makes them them? And so I think what makes Overkill Overkill is certainly Blitz's vocals and the fact that they go places that um, sometimes are questionable, but that un but that you know, contemporaries un, in, would never indisputably go, yeah. make them them. Yeah, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, so so let's do that. Let's let's start talking about the tracks then. Uh, sure. So opens with um, I was going to say the title track. It's not the title track. Kind of sh- you know, or maybe it should be, but uh, Mean Green Killing Machine. I mean, come on. First of all, you get the nice buildup and you start to get you right in the beginning. You know, first you start out with the drums and then you start to get the rumble of that bass. And the thing that I love about Dee Dee's bass is you can hear every string. You can hear every string oh, you certainly rumble can. and growl. And the bass <laughs> you is You can hear like, every fret. <laughs> oh my God, it's awesome. Uh, I guess if you like that stuff, so, but like, if you like, if you like, that level of bass in your mix, then this is a dream album for that because what you hear in the first, you know, 20 seconds of this album is what you're getting. You're getting bass in your face all album long. That, that's um, true. I mean, it, it's very much a track that kind of, you know, as, as we've talked about before, good, good opening tracks are ones that go, hey, this is what you're going to be listening to yeah. for the next three quarters of an hour or in this case, hour and five minutes. And so, this track, it absolutely does. That. I do love that, that opening because it, it's, it's, it's grinding. It's got oh, an unusual, a usual time signature, unusual rhythm, and it grinds, and it's, you know, feels you get, thematic. You get this fade-in of the looping guitar riff around 40 seconds, right? And it starts to build, and it starts to build, and it starts to get louder, it starts to get louder, and then the drums all come together, and then, boom, at one minute, you get the riff. Yep. And it is chill-inducing. Like, it's just like, fuck, this is, this is 80s. That riff is it takes you right back, and then the drum beat behind it and the bass beat behind it when the actual verse starts to me is like we are back in 1987 right now. <laughs> it's just like boom, and so I love that you get because there's a lot of songs in this album that are not old school that are very different, but this is an old school at least the very beginning of this song and the first you know couple verses of the song are like we are slam dancing in a club in 1987. Yeah. I, I would Boom. say the first four minutes, basically the the yes. the opening and the main riff, and yeah, the first four minutes are absolutely, like you say, a bit of a throwback. Um, but then at four minutes, suddenly it goes into it becomes a groove. Yes, uh, and you're like, wait a second, and yep. it can't, again, like you said about unusual choices, like to me that feels a bit off 
for this well, song. Well, then you got the barbershop so quartet in the background going, different. whoa, you know, with the, with the background <laughs> vocals. And you're like, whoa, what, what the hell's going on here? Like, and that is, that is just a thing that you're only going to get from Overkill. But I also feel like that in some ways is a nod to Motorhead in a weird way. Like they're like, because Motorhead would get very bluesy rocky at times in a way that was not as punch you in the mouth aggressive as some of their other stuff. Like I, I feel like Motorhead, even though the the book on them is that they're they're so consistent and they are, you know, the ACDC of heavy metal and they're just straight ahead, but they surprised you. I think even on the album that we do, which was what, Sacrifice? Yeah. Um, they surprise you. And sometimes it's a good surprise and sometimes it's a surprise you you frankly didn't want. And you could certainly make the argument here in in this song that this was not a surprise that you were looking for in a song that had a very catchy riff that they could have just rode straight through the song. Right, right. And that's I think that's overall, that's the thing that's, that did surprise me. And, you know, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways about this album was there, there are... Every song on this album has the ingredients of an absolute blasting three-minute, here's the riff, bang, (laughs) next track, here's the riff, bang. You know what I mean? They could have done that. Would it have been better for it? That's really difficult to say. But instead, they don't. Yeah, they make these like, we're just going to suddenly change direction in the middle of the song and write and it, almost and it an changes entirely direction new song. lyrically too yeah. because it, because the song but i think here the meaning behind it is everything's kick ass right it's kick ass to wh- whether you're talking about the military thing or you're talking about the being a kick ass thrash band on the road thing it's like man this is awesome right this is so awesome this is so awesome and then it gets to this point and it's like hey it's not all it's cracked up to be right yeah. and lyrically they're talking about you know it's a sad sad situation you know nuts and bolts and screws with no social class like to me that's the whole like if it's if you're thinking about combat then it's like you come home and you and you're not supported anymore and you're not looked at the same anymore or if you're on on the road it's like what do you you're you're just this this collection of parts that needs to do its job sort of thing and then sort of where do you fit and so i do like that from a lyrical standpoint and from a from a musical standpoint, they're kind of giving you the like, you thought it was all kick-ass, right? Well, it's not. It's not. And so the question then becomes like, but by showing you that and going in that direction, did you derail the song? And I think you could make the case that maybe they did. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they they reuse that opening twice, which I think is like is once too many. You know, they use yeah. it before the solo and then after the solo as well. Right, you know, right. Literally bookends the solo. Which and I'm trying to think of what band we were talking lessens about. Lessens the impact a bit, and it's and I, I don't want to rag on it too much because I do no, like no, no. this song. It's a great song, and that main riff is great. But yes, yeah, some of these choices are really strange. And this is frankly one of the reasons I chose this album because there are definitely albums where there's a majority of songs where they are more straight ahead and they're not. So, so the diversions on this album and the choices they make to me make for great discussion, right? So like like why we chose St. Anger as an album to, to, to sort of cover. And so, um, but I, I agree with you because this song is seven minutes and 29 seconds long, right? So if you cut out the, the sort of swingy, bluesy, groovy metal middle of it, and you cut out the second introduction of it, then you're probably down to about five minutes, right? Right. Uh, all said and done. And so you could make the case that there's a, a mix of this song that is much more straight ahead, just uh, crushing from start to finish, and maybe 
uh, I think, a little more palatable overall. And so I do, and I struggle with that sometimes when I listen to it. And then there, there's days where I listen to it and I'm like, no, nah, I wouldn't change anything about that. And then there's days where I'm like, yeah, that part does kind of derail a little bit. And then um, I forget what album and what episode we talked about, but I know we've talked about on the show before that there are some bands that are really good at the reset. Oh, that was Typo Negative. Okay. Because that that was one of your main complaints about Typo Negative was that like they just almost every song, they get to two minutes before the end and now we're just going to play a different song. (laughs) Yes. Right. And then, but there was another episode that we, where we talked about, there was a band that was particularly good at like resetting you right back into the riff, resetting you right back into the verse, like resetting, like quickly, like, like seamlessly. And so I would not say that overkill does that. Like they, like that, that second reset is a long reset, right? It's a long uh, tail back into the song. Whereas some bands are really good at bringing you right back into the song after a break or right back into the song after a solo. And so, um, I can't remember who that was. You're right. I can't either, but somebody will remember that discussion. Yeah. I wonder if the listeners, they probably have better memories of the episodes than we do. So, (laughs) so you could level that criticism against, uh, overkill in some of these songs that their reset is too long of a transition. Right. Like even if they just fixed that, it might have made this strong this song uh stronger. But I do love the anthemic mean green killing machine. Bam yeah. bam 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 bam. Oh yeah, no, that's great. And uh yeah, and so like from a from like a drum fill standpoint, from a uh you know, just from a riff standpoint, like there's a lot of classic thrash in this song. And I think overall especially with the the diversion that it takes in the middle, a very good indicator of what you're getting on the rest of this album. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Um, it's yeah, in, in both good and bad ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right. It's a great summation of what you're going to get. So, all right. So right, you're tra- not being sold a bill of goods that then you, no, you get into the rest of the album. Not, like, well, no. what the hell? Yeah. You're like, oh no, this is what it is. Um, but then we get to track two, which is Goddamn Trouble. Very Motorhead in my mind. Oh, no, see, I was thinking Pantera. To me, okay. this, no, the, op- that too. the opening especially is just like completely Pantera to me. And again, that's uh, I not feel a bad like thing, the pre-chorus but... where it's barum, 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 like where they let it breathe out a little bit, that is much more groovy sort of Pantera-y to me. Yeah. I feel like the main riff is just this sort of rolling, straight ahead, more Motorhead-ish, punch you in the face um, 
type of thing. Like it's a, they're not doing anything extremely complicated with the main riff here. It's actually like the as they build into the chorus that they that they diversify a little bit, you know. Well, well, that that's when they the pre the build up to the chorus repeats the opening, and that is yeah, that is the sort of very Pantera ish riff I was thinking of. The rest of the song I thought of as more of a kind of speed driven thrashy song than a Motorhead. I mean, and obviously Motorhead famously, you know, were a very fast playing band, at least for the time. Um, but I thought of this as more of a sort of straight ahead thrash song than, than a rock and roll style song, I guess. Yeah. I feel like of, on this whole album, like this is, this might be my least favorite song on the album. Oh, interesting. Um, which is really interesting because it's a song that most people tend to like off of this album. And it was one of the singles off this album. There's an actual, they did a video oh, wow, for the right. song. Like this is, this is one of the songs that they chose to spotlight off of this album. And I'm pretty sure they played it live. I'll have to check in my notes at the end as far as the live stuff. Um, I don't dislike it, but this song doesn't really do anything for me. Huh? I mean, I don't mind it. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I also by no means would say it's my least favorite on the album. It's uh, partly because it does have that build up to the pre-chorus uh, build up, which I think is really good. Um, and the actual chorus itself is, is pretty good as well. It's, uh, you know, not perfect, but it's pretty good. The whole too much goddamn trouble thing, I think works really well. Um, I like what they do right, right before they get into a verse where they sort of, the the drums speed up and they really it's like it's almost like this cacophony like where they just like double and triple down on it like you know before yeah. they get into the main riff like it does they do have some nice like uh pre-verse sort of builds within it yeah yeah the 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 one thing that this the one sort of downer of this song which is symptomatic of most of the album is that i think there are too many lyrics <laughs> It's like, oh, I'm looking at the lyrics on, uh, on dark lyrics now. And they're, that's like, what e- I have to, every, every song is practically an essay, you know? Well, to um, be fair, you write music with no lyrics <laughs> and many of the bands that you like have scant, if any I'm, lyrics, I know, to... <laughs> I know, I know, but, but I do yeah, like, I mean, comparatively, I, I, this is like the odyssey right, compared I, to, I do like plenty of bands that have, you know, like lots of lyrics, uh, but but a bit more variety you know yeah, it's yeah. like every song has lyrics lots of lyrics um and sometimes lyrics that are saying the same thing right yeah yeah, yeah. This, this is what so, I was, so about again being a bit fair criticism there for sure um uh, and again you know six and a half minutes long for a really fast thrashy song like this just yeah like i say i, I do like it and maybe i like it more than you but i do wish it was a minute or two shorter uh, and that, okay. Ah, right. So talking about Motorhead, that leads into track three, our finest hour. Power, 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 power
I really like this song. Well, to me, this is the most Motorhead influenced track on the album, and it's not one of my favorites. But that's oh, not, I love it. But that's not because of the the you know anything to do with the Motorhead thing. But this has got the D beat. This is the one track that has that Motorhead classic D beat yeah, going on, and a really good main riff as well. Oh uh, my god, it's crushing. Yeah, especially when at like thirty five seconds you get all instruments together just hammering on that riff. It's just like, I love that they do, like they'll have these songs where they have almost like a drum intro and then like the main riff over the drums. But then when, when bass, guitar, cymbals, everything come in together, they just like take that riff to another level. And they do that a lot. And I love that about them. It's almost like they, they take something heavy and make it heavier. Yeah. Well, and this is why, the whole business with the bass being so high in the mix, like, you know, obviously I understand why. Uh, and I'm not certainly not questioning his talent and abilities as a bass player, but the most effective moments on this album musically are when they're all in sync, when it's really tight. And like you say, everything is attacking the same riff. But of course, when they're doing that, the bass isn't actually doing anything flashy or interesting and it doesn't need to. I'm not saying it should, but then when you have it so high in the mix, it just sounds weird. Because Agree it's, to disagree. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, if you have a Steve Harris, he's this never... This is one of those times where you're, you say weird and I hear awesome. Right, I guess, I guess. But like, like I say, think of somebody like a Steve Harris. You know, he's like, Steve Harris, obviously really high in the mix, but he's never playing just the same riff as everybody right. else. Right, he is playing, he is... He's, he's off in his own world bass. doing his own yeah, thing. Yeah, he's doing yeah. his own thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Whereas, as you say, like, you know, when they do lock in on this album and they're all just banging on that same riff. It is great. It sounds, that's brilliant. But I would argue that even playing the main riff is more than what many bass players do. Because in a lot of songs, they're playing one note. You know what I mean? Like they're playing one or two notes. I don't know whether that's really true of metal. of Maybe of sort of pop rock bands, but of metal bassists, most of them are playing. Whereas I feel like with Didi, he is playing, he is all over those riffs. Well, he's like Rex. um, He's like Rex yes. Brown. He's literally playing the riff exactly in time and the same as the rhythm guitar. And it gives it a, it just gives it such a weight, but, oh, but it does, that's yeah. not even my favorite part of the song. I mean, that, that riff is crushing, but to me, it's nothing compared to what we get at about three minutes and 20 seconds where, where you get this again, 1987 slam dance <laughs> mosh part of your song you know, somebody call the EMS. It's just like, dun, 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 dun. like that is such a, I, to me, that feels like such a very East coast thrash anthraxy mosh part. You know what I mean? I just love that. I love that. about. I guess that is kind of East coasty. And actually, uh, when we get to track eight, there's an, there's a bit exactly like that. And you're right. Thinking about that riff as well. That is kind of, it is the sort of thing you'd expect to hear from Anthrax and not from one of the West coast bands. You're absolutely right. And I just, I just absolutely love that. And then I love at the end where, um, you know, they're talking about our finest hour. I'll be your, you know, I'll be your right hand, all that kind of stuff. And then you hear like the, the sort of almost like anthemic guitar notes being played under the vocals there. Like this sort of, it's almost taking it up another level, like this sort of soaring, um, almost like patriotic, you know, uh, feel to it. To me, it feels like t- towards the end. 
yeah. around like five minutes and 15 seconds where, yeah, yeah. uh, where he's sort of make, and to me, like this song feels like it's, it's like a recruiter talking to a, a potential recruit, you know, I'll be your conscience. I'll be your guide. You know, I'll be the understanding undisputed power. I'll hold your hand in this, our finest hour. And to me, like that is, uh, like he's selling him on something. And I, I just love, I, to me, I love the way that this song, uh, kind of comes to a close yeah that's almost certainly a more accurate reading of uh, (laughs) what i thought when i first read these lyrics i thought oh this is the schizophrenic part of a serial killer's mind (laughs) like (laughs) convincing him to go out and kill people (laughs) well i mean hey you never know with overkill it could be that as well (laughs) yeah you know or it could be the the speech he's given himself before he goes out on stage or something you know what i mean also true Um, yeah (laughs) uh, so so either one of those but yeah that so i i do like it just has that that sort of uh almost propaganda tinge to it that i kind of love and so so i love that song then you get uh song number four which is shine on very different from the first three songs you have this sort of razor blade guitar tone it's almost exodus like to me that that uh that initial guitar riff it feels almost like gary holtish to me see again i i thought this was a bit more groovy this sounded to me like sort of pantera influence oh i could see that Uh, but i don't recognize that pantera vibe i think because i wasn't as huge of a pantera fan like i i often could be, yeah, yeah. Under-recognize their groove stylings, and I attribute them to someone else. The the However, talking about the West Coast, the, the middle section with the clean guitar, that sounds very Testament to me. That really oh, for reminded sure, me right? of Testament. And, it's, and, and it also gets like, at the three minute and 30 second marks, it's like dreamy and doomy, and he's actually singing here. Um, this was the one that I felt was Queensryche. Oh, this right. is the okay. one yeah, yeah. where yeah. he's sort of singing. Um, I forget what part he was singing, but it, it, he has this sort of Jeff Tate quality to him almost. And it reminds me of like the warning era Queensryche there, this middle part where he's sort of uh, going off in a completely different direction. And I felt like in this song, it worked. Is it the one more fire bit? 
Because he gets yeah, really, really so. high with a clean vocal on that. You know, he sings yeah. one more fire before I die, one more fire, get me high. That's he you know, it's clean and he hits some really high notes. So yeah, again, did remind me of Jeff Tate. And then I thought the solo on this was a tiny bit uh Kirk Hammett-esque. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you could be right. Yeah. yeah. So this was um, a song I, that I, I I like when it comes back as well from the clean section and into the solo. Uh, yeah, you know, the solo itself, you know, whatever, but the, the way it moves from the clean section into the solo and then the, the rhythm and the riffs that go underneath the solo, I think are absolutely cracking, like really, really pounded and powerful. And you say what, whatever about the solos in general, I, th- I think that's a good point. Um, this is not a band that you recognize for their solos. And yet, you know what I mean? Ev- almost every song has one. They all have well because I feel like that that is the brand of music that they that they deal in right and so there's going to be a guitar solo and but at the same time like I don't it, much like Anthrax whereas I never and I know I got in trouble for this before but I never thought Dan Spitz was that great of a soloist and Dan Spitz was in Overkill for a hot minute as well oh really <laughs> um, yeah way back in the day but um, I never listened to Anthrax for their guitar solos. I always listened to Anthrax right. for their mosh parts and their main riffs, right? Sure, yeah. And so I kind of feel that way about Overkill as well. Like the solos aren't bad, but they're not overly flashy or oh yeah, there was nothing really wrong stand outy. It was a bit uh, like um, I'm on a math. Like sure. you know, the, the, like the solos on that album, uh, and not every song on that album has a solo, I, I believe. But you know, the solos on that album, they are perfectly fine, good, well executed yeah. solos. <laughs> yes, but yep. I could not hum a single one of them to you, not one. Right, uh, and that's kind of how these are. You know, they are absolutely fine. And maybe you know, if I listen to this album a hundred times, sure, okay, you know, eventually those things are going to worm their way into your memory, but. You know, to me, a classic solo is one that I only have to hear maybe three or four times and then find myself humming. Do you know what I mean? Whereas what yeah. I found myself humming uh, from this album was the rhythm riffs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They, in that way, I feel like they're a lot like Exodus, right? Like for me, I come to Exodus for Gary Holt's riffs. Right. Give me Gary Holt riffs all day long. I'm so glad that Slayer is retiring so he can go back to Exodus <laughs> and make another Exodus album that is as good as blood in blood out. And so have um, they not made one since? No. Ah, uh, right. No. And he hasn't, uh, I think Lee Altus he hasn't had time one. probably. Yeah. No, it's not Lee Altus. Who is the guy? I forget the guy who has been, um, uh, touring with them, but even in a lot of Exodus shows, Gary hasn't been able to play cause he's been with Slayer. So like give Gary back to Exodus is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so unless you're going to let him write the next Slayer album, then you can keep him a little bit longer. But I think, uh, <laughs> Which I wouldn't be surprised if Slayer put out a final album. That would not surprise me. But um, that's a that's a subject for another day. So yeah, Shine On. Uh, I definitely like some of the places they go. This is a place where I feel like their sort of mid-song diversion actually works. I and agree. Enhances yeah. the song. Um, so yeah, good stuff. And then we get to song five, which is the Long Road. Boys, they take it on the chin 
this is one of my least favorites on the album i'm afraid uh again not bad you know there are no bad tracks on this album really um but we get to a point here in the album where things all start to merge into one another you know what i mean um and i this is this is a perfect example of the verse of this song for me is better than the chorus and that's true of quite a few songs on this album for me. Like, I really like the verse, and then they get to the chorus, and I'm like, ah, you know, almost wish they hadn't. Um, because the verse riff is great, but the chorus doesn't have enough of a hook. The vocal melody doesn't feel like it gels with the music well enough. Um, yeah, it just kind of, this, this track just doesn't work for me. I almost feel the exact opposite of you <laughs> about this song. <laughs> I fucking love this song i love the almost reverse riff that you get to start the song it sounds very anthrax to me very sort of early anthrax to me um this dent 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 i love that it sounds very anthrax and it just sounds very old school thrash to me i love the chorus i love the onward upward uh anthemic sort of chanting but i'm a sucker for that stuff like i give me an anthemic chorus all day that i can sort of shout and and throw my hand up in the air um i i feel like the back half of this album is amazing and it sounds like we're maybe going to disagree on that and i feel like this is almost a false start for the back half of the album and and maybe on the disc side it would actually be on the front side of the album it probably would be but um, because the next song is a little bit sillier than than what you're getting. But this, to me, is an indicator of the much darker tones that we get on the back half of this album, at least thematically. Right. And so uh, I really like it. I love that. Man, it's that razor blade, almost like feels like it's being played backwards, sliding riff. Uh, I just, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. And, and this is, again, where to me, like Andy Sneap, I just love that what he captures of of the band on that. I love the tone. I love the sound on the song. Um, the bass is like the, really loud on this one, though. Like I, of all the songs on this it album, it pops right because it's it's bom, so bom, loud, bom, bom, and so it is definitely. <laughs> It's like, you know, there are times in this track where I'm like, all I can hear is the fucking bass. And you get like this ripping <laughs> solo to open the song, which is one of the few points in the album where we're like having a, like that's the true. Solo yeah. Up front yeah. Uh, is, they don't do that a lot, right? They don't, they don't uh, open with that a lot. So I feel like it fits here and it is, it, it's probably the most ripping solo on the album as far as like speed. And so um, then you get the main riff, like at a minute and 45 seconds is when the main riff comes in. So yeah. interesting like song. Say, I, I like the way it's structured. Well, and like I say, I do, I think the main riff is great. I, you know, I do like the verse riff. Uh, it, but yeah, the song structure in general and the chorus just didn't really do it for me. Uh, and they and, do the same thing that they did on song three, our finest hour, whereas there, as the song is getting ready to come to a close, you have those individual notes being played underneath the chorus. Yeah, that's like, true. Like yeah. driving, and I again, I, I just love that. It is a nice touch, yeah. Um, and then, okay, so then track six, which if this were vinyl, you know, would probably be this sort of th- the thematically the starter side two, which is uh, let's all go to Hades.
Yeah, and I feel like it, it's two songs that we're going to see grouped together that are a little bit of a departure from what we've seen on the rest of the album and what we will see on the rest of the album. Yeah, yeah. In terms say, of like um, tempo, I mean, th- this is my least favorite song on the album, uh, without question. There's. It reminds me of uh, God on "We've Come for You All" for Anthrax, the um, the Cadillac song. Oh, with dime bag on it. Cadillac rock box. Yeah, yeah. yes, that's yeah. It, it's the Cadillac rock box of this album, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Not, it's the, not my favorite Anthrax track. It must be said, no. right? Right. It's the it's the whole kind of lighthearted, um, you know, a very twisted sister to me. Like this, this is uh, very uh, in in kind of Motorhead to me. This is this is more of a rock song than it is a thrash song. Yeah, I would agree you know? with that. It's got a, and it's I, got this sort of bouncy sort of. I think the in, the intro rhythm with the offbeat drums is quite good and interesting, uh, but from yeah, from that point onwards, it, the rest of the song just goes downhill for me. Uh, well, and I mentioned Anthrax, right? Because who is the other band of all the thrash bands that we listen to that would do a song like that? Anthrax. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no and, question. And, and, and Twisted Sister, another East Coast band, you know, had that sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, approach to some of their songs. And so this is a song that you wouldn't find on a Slayer or Megadeth or Metallica album. You might find it on an Anthrax album because there's a pretty good analog to it, you know, on, on We've Come For You All. It, but yeah, it could, I could certainly see how it feels like out of place and doesn't, although I, I feel like it ties to Come Heavy a little bit too. Well, okay, all right. So let, let's move on because I, like I say, yeah, not, I don't, I don't, I don't really have anything there's not a lot to say, to say about, about, about that song, song yeah. really. Yeah. So, so let's move on to track seven and that is Come Heavy. this song i don't think you seem to be saying that you think this is of a piece with let's all go to hades but i think they're very different no no I, well i don't dislike let's all go to hades the the way that you do i like cadillac rockbox too so um <laughs> but i, I kind of it, it's a it's different than the other songs on the album but i'm okay with that because this is overkill like they'll go right they'll do something different and i but i feel like when you group songs together on the album like six and seven feel like they if you're going to have them on this album, they sit next to each other. I uh, see. Now for me, that's five and six. That's long road. And let's go to Hades where, whereas come heavy for me, that is, yeah, that's the kind of coming out of the, out of the, uh, trough. And back with up let's all, let's all climax. go to Hades. You sort of have the bump, 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 bump. And with come heavy, it's 
bump a dump a dump a dump a dump a dump. You know, like it, it just like tempo wise, they just feel like they're similar. I guess, to me. I guess. But this to me again, this feels like a very groove metal song. The opening especially oh, yeah. is. Really, I would agree you know, more groove bounces. metal than rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, the but that actually highlights something else uh, about the kind of theme that runs through the album, which is the drums are. I mean, clearly, who this drummer is. Very, very, you know, technically excellent, but he's not doing a lot. There's sometimes some tracks where he does some interesting stuff, but a lot of Uh the time he's just, he's just playing the drums. He's just, you know, playing the sort of most obvious thrashy Uh drum beat that fits the song. And I wish, and I don't know whether that's because he's not allowed to do anything more or he doesn't want get, to, or what? I don't but get I, that sense. I mean, the guy that they just hired uh, in 2017 was from Shadows Fall, and they've been sort of raving about what he's oh, okay. bringing to the band. Maybe that may it could just have been his style. Um, yeah, maybe because I wish the the opening riff of this is really, like I say, it's really groovy. It's really good, and it just makes me wish for a bit of that Vinnie Paul style flair. You know, and Vinnie Paul is another like Lars is a drummer who divides people's opinions, no question. But you sure. know, one thing he had was swing and groove, and he never played the obvious or boring standard beat. Uh, and I wish we had a bit more of that on this album. I think it would have uh-huh. really increased the interest in the album for me. This one, I feel like, uh, as opposed to Let's All Go to Hades, I feel like this starts to explore some darker themes that absolutely permeate tunes eight, nine, and ten yeah. on this album. Yeah. So we're sort of this is this is almost a transition tune from, you know, let's all go to Hades into red, white, and blue, and then the rest of the album. Yeah. I I would agree with that. As I say, I do like this song. It's uh I think this is a vast improvement over Let's All Go to Hades. And it does, yeah, it feels like this is the start of the rise towards the climax of the album. Um And that continues with track eight, Red, White and Blue. Now we're back in thrash territory um, in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, there, this is another song that has that brings you right back to 1987 with the slam dance mosh part yeah. middle. Well, are they, um, is this, this is the I fastest like the song on the album, isn't it? Uh, I would say out of the gate it probably is for yeah, sure. Yeah. Because it, it just 
comes right out. And I feel like the drums on this song are actually really good, especially the cymbal work, because I feel like when we get to that break in the middle where everything slows down and it's just that crushing mosh riff, you get some good cymbal crashes there that really sort of work well with what they're doing. And I actually made a note about the drums on this one because I felt like on this song they were, they sort of stood out. Yeah, um, they're definitely better on this track than than some of the others. And you're right that that middle section, the whole damn right bit, is oh my I mean, god, again, give us liberty or we can give you death. Right, like, that is just like dun, 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 dun. that's, that's what, such that, a great thrash turn. Like it's one of the best lyrics on the album as well. Oh, it's fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean that really grooves. That whole section is, I imagine, live. That's probably a bit of a barnstormer. And it's you can, five minutes long, right? Because you so can picture the crowd singing along damn right as well, totally. you know, call and response and yeah, yep. perfectly suited to a, a, a live arena. But also, yeah, you know, it's just a good rocking groovy track, but really and it's only five minutes long. Yes. <laughs> so I say only, but it's five minutes long, meaning that it doesn't really have time to really overstay its welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even the solo. I even made yeah. note of the solo. The solo on this, not bad. This is this is definitely the kind of reining it all back in for for the final push. And then um So then track nine, the wheel. god just <laughs> like you get this combination slayer pantera opening just uh i i freaking love it dun, 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 dun. you get that it's just like so <laughs> yeah. good um it's just like it's just so sinister and then the main riff is just killer the bass is killer in the song you've got some good drum rolls in the song uh some great lyrics I'd love to sit and have a drink to feel, and I'd love to quit the war and think, but I must grease the wheel. Just fucking awesome. That is good. That is good. All, I really question the wisdom of having an album called The Grinding Wheel, track nine, The Wheel, track 10, The Grinding I Wheel. Know. Like, I know. I know. Come but on, If guys. you just change the, then in your mind, it changed the title of the song. Because seriously, if someone said like, what's so fucking great about Overkill? I would play them this song. Oh, really? I would play them this song off of this album because it is heavy as shit. It's got a killer riff. It's got a great chorus. 
It's got some of the best lyrics on the album. And I would just like, this is a song I would put up uh, uh, against any other band of like, these guys are fucking awesome. And it's under five minutes. So it doesn't have any of those diversions that might derail someone from like that wouldn't appreciate the the directions that they go in. Like if you just want to hear a kick-ass heavy ass song from overkill, this is that song. And I almost feel like it is a trailer for the epicness that we get in the final song in the album. I don't know, because they are really quite different. So, all right, well, let's move on then to track 10, which is The Grinding Wheel, the, the title track. I just I feel like it, people are like fuck man the wheel was so great and then track ten is like hold my beer <laughs> because I'm about to show you one of the greatest metal songs that's ever been recorded that's what this song is it, and th- this is another one where when he starts singing at the start of this song I was just like oh it's Queensrÿche oh I didn't get a Queensrÿche vibe at all and but now I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again <laughs> really you just gave me a yeah. whole new angle to listen to the song on. <laughs> I just fucking love this song. I love everything about it. I love the three quarters of the song that we get that is just bleak and heavy and crushing. The whole idea of just being ground down, of doing the same thing over and over again, of not feeling like you can get out of it. Like that whole, all of that is just so well captured in the tempo and the tone and the crushing heaviness of this song. Yeah. I, just, well, I, I love everything about it. In contrast to um, Red, White, and Blue, this, I'm pretty sure, is the slowest song on the album because it's the only song that has that, I suppose, compared to the, everything else, you'd regard it as halftime feel yes. throughout like the majority of the song. Um, it, is, it is a good song, but it is such a weird one to close with. For Dude, this, because for it's this like album. a fucking epic, like well, right. I mean, sure, you want something a bit epic. It's the longest song out of an album of quite long songs. You know, this is the longest song. It has the faux choir bit with tubular bells banging at the end. Oh you know? my god! And let's yeah, it's, d- it's let's good. give this its due. Let's start at four <laughs> minutes, right? 
but it sounds like no other track on the album. And it's, it's, it's the least aggressive track on the album. And, I, and like I say, I don't dislike it. I like this song, but I just think putting it at the end is such a I strange feel like choice. It goes from being a almost depressingly, crushingly heavy song to becoming the most aggressive song on the album by the time that it's done. That that's how I feel about the song because what starts to build with the baseline at four minutes, just the naked baseline there that starts to build the end of this song. And then when the chugs come in and then the bells come in and then you get that. So you get that, you just get this crushing, the grinding wheel, like just this building. And it feels like a wheel. It's just going slowly around and slowly around. And then it starts to speed up a little bit. And as it's, as it feels like it's just fading out, like a lot of songs do. And I know you hate that. Um, you have Blitz, who is getting more frantic. He gets more frantic as almost to the point of insanity, as the wheel just keeps round and round and round, and he starts to scream it. It's fucking awesome. And then as that fades out just into eternity, that the wheel goes around and around and around, you hear the strings, right? You hear the the main notes played one last time and then one final note to end it. It's just fucking awesome. Uh, like I say, I you know I do think it's a good track. I just yeah, really. This weird is a song that I can only end. listen to at the end of this album. Like this is a great example of. But does it make an, you want to go back and start listening to the to track one again? You know. No, but you know what does. <laughs> the the end credit song. <laughs> Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but okay. Okay. So, uh, it's not quite a bonus track, but it might as well be uh, track 11 Emerald cover of the Thin Lizzy song. Down from the glen came the marching men with their shields and their swords to fight the fight they believed to be right. Overthrow the overlords to the town where there was plenty. They brought thunder, sword, and flame When they left the towers empty Cause they could never play again What a fucking perfect song to put at the end of this album. Like, do you think? Oh my God, I love it. It's, I love everything about it. I love their take on it. I love the fact that it's Thin Lizzy. I love the fact that it's this song, which I think fits some of the themes that they're talking about on this album. Um, whether it's going to war for real in combat or whether it's going to war as a band every night or whatever. Like I, I feel like thematically it fits musically it fits and it ends. If, if you were emotionally drained at the end of the grinding wheel, it rejuvenates you to then start the album again. I guess so, but I, I feel, I feel sort of achieving that with a cover is 
I guess kind of cheating. <laughs> it's because it's a cover, you know. I mean, but Emer- it's such a good cover. I, Emerald's a great. Well, it's okay. I mean, there's not absolutely nothing wrong with it, but it also doesn't elevate the song in any way. Which I think, you know, you you know my my grand unified theory of cover versions. Uh, and you know, this one is firmly in the. It's fine, but there is nothing special about it. You know, uh, it doesn't. I feel like musically, they obviously they give it a punch clearly, but I I actually feel like this has the best solo on the album. Now, granted, it's a solo that was not originally written right, by I was this band, say. but the performance <laughs> of Gary the Moore. solo, <laughs> but the performance of the solo to me carries is is very emotional. Like oh, I, I, it is, but I, again, that's the you know. So is the original. That's emulating. Yeah, but, you could, but a lot of bands lose that. You know what I mean? I or a lot of bands try to do something with it that fails. Whereas you had a great solo, and it's performed here, where I can actually feel the person playing it. I can right. feel them playing the solo. But in a, but doesn't that just make you wish that the rest of the solos on this album had that same feel? I don't think they. I don't think they serve the same function. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like in this album, the so on this song, and I'm trying to think of an Anthrax analog. So for Anthrax, for me, um, it's on Worship Music. There's one solo that I feel is like the best solo that Anthrax has ever had. Um, I'll have to look it up. It's, it's Best, best uh, solo Anthrax ever had was performed by Dime. <laughs> no, it's John Caggiano. Uh, right. Let me just look it up real quick while we have it. But I do feel like, um, clearly, the, the, the solo was meant to do something different you know, on the Sin Lizzy song than most solos are meant to do in the- On an uh, overkill song, yeah, yeah. On an overkill song, exactly. No, I, of course, I, I type I in understand worship that, music and I get gospel music. But this is what um, I meant about the uh, the sort of the, the talent and what have you of the players, like of the guitarist and the drummer and stuff. They're clearly really, really talented, skilled players. And I feel like they're not given the chance to shine enough on the rest of the album, which is a shame because as you say, this, you know, the performance of this track shows that they are, they can do that, yeah. uh, you know, when the song calls for it. Uh, and I em- think and that Emerald they would argue is- that they do that stuff with some of the choices they make in the songs that other bands don't make. I feel like that's them Maybe, kind of showing their yeah. personality a little bit and, and getting a little groovy with it. Where- but is that them or is that DD? You know, it's uh, without knowing exactly well, how the songs are written. I would say written, it's, it's DD and Blitz, right? Because they're the two constants here. So I, w- I would think that if Blitz was not down for that, then that wouldn't continue to be a consistent theme for oh, them. Oh, sure. You but, know what, what I mean? but what I mean is, like, was the guitarist consistent right, right, at any point? To, sure. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And, and yeah, you could maybe argue no. Um, the song I was thinking of, by the way, is song five on Anthrax's Worship Music, and it is called I'm Alive. And it is the best solo of any Anthrax song of any album that they've ever done. Um, so right. go back and listen to that. And because of the emotion of it, there, the John Caggiano has such emotion in that solo that uh, it will forever <laughs> sort of sort of stick with me. Right. So it's freaking awesome. Um, I will say, so, em- yeah. Emerald itself is. If if anybody out there hasn't heard the original. Go and listen to, um, which album is it on? Is it Breakout, I think? Uh, it's by Thin Lizzy. I think it's on the album Breakout, which is the same one as Boys Are Back in Town, which most people have heard, even if they've never I heard I would Emerald. just say of Thin Lizzy uh, in general, because I was a latecomer to Thin Lizzy, most people have no idea how amazing that band oh, actually is. Oh, so good. Is. This is one, yeah. of, one of the, you know, because they're obviously from Ireland, um, uh, we, you know, we were exposed to them here in the UK. They were a charting band, you know, at the time when Phil Lynott was alive. 
in the UK. And so Thin Lizzy is one of those rock bands like, I don't know, Status Quo or something that people in the UK grew up with. Um, sure. That most people outside the UK have to discover because they just weren't all that well known. Uh, like, I'm, if you think Boys Are Back in Town is who Thin Lizzy is. Oh, yeah, no. Boy, yeah. are you in for a treat. <laughs> yeah. Boy, are you in for a treat. Like, yeah. yeah, go and listen to Jailbreak and, yeah, Emerald I would put Thin and, Lizzy up there with Queen as oh, far as, like, musical. Well, I know Lynette and Mercury were friends, and, I so, mean, and some people say more than that. Um, but I don't know whether I'd put them in the same league, but... And I don't mean that in a qualitative sense. I mean literally Black just Rose, in man, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, Thin Lizzy. If, yeah, if you're not familiar with Thin Lizzy, go and check them out. You know? Oh my and god! I, and so I would good. hope that people who've bought this album because they're Overkill fans might do that. You know, that's the one thing about well. And if you're looking for a band that for, has influenced it? many a thrash band, oh yeah, uh, Overkill are not the only one who have covered Thin Lizzy, and especially well, and especially thrash bands with a prominent bassist because uh-huh. Phil Lynott being the band leader. And also the bassist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just listen, the, the bass lines are just absolutely incredible. So if, if you're a bass player, of course you want to pick a Thin Lizzy song, right? Because you get to have fun yeah. when you're when you're playing a Thin Lizzy song. So um, yeah, so, yeah I, I feel like Susie this Quattro. is the, <laughs> to me, this is the pick you up off the ground after Grinding Wheel just destroyed you, uh, you know, at number 10. And I will say this about Grinding Wheel too, just to go back to the number 10 track. At eight minutes, I don't feel like it is a second too long. No, that's the one track on the album that actually I think justifies its length completely. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree with that. There's no reason for that or need for that song to be any shorter. Um, but every other song on the album, I would shave a minute or two off. That's me. <laughs> yeah, and I think those are all interesting discussions because some of that stuff, I think, like we talked about, you, you, you would probably opt to cut out some of the some, Some of the, the stuff that, that makes yeah, yeah. the that makes overkill overkill, yeah, yeah. Which is, it may, I mean, that's, that's why it makes it interesting to talk about, right? I did want to mention real quick. I did see them in March of 2017 at the Worcester Palladium in Massachusetts. They played three songs off of this album. One of them being Emerald. Uh, the other two, oh, wow. uh, they they opened with Mean Green Killing Machine, which you might imagine is a great song to open yeah. with. Uh, and they played Goddamn Trouble, which, as as we stated before, was one of the singles off of this album. So. Uh, yeah, this came out, I think in February of 2017. So it's still a fairly new album, even though they're recording the most recent one now, but Overkill has many albums for you to go back to and listen to. So if this was a band that you only had a passing familiarity with, or have really not listened to much of anything from them, uh, I urge you to go back and give them some more attention. All right. Okay, so let's wrap it up. Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, Remember, if you enjoy the show, please do tell your friends, spread the word, rate us on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, in your podcast player, wherever you can possibly give us a thumbs up or a star or whatever. Uh, And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. And if you were uh, intrigued by our discussion of the Facebook group earlier, you can join us there at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. So homework. Lay it on me. Yeah. Um, you know, as we said, you're, you're, the, you're doing the theme this time. Uh, I'm, I'm dodging that bullet. <laughs> spread your wings. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, spread my, uh, diseased cancerous wings in this case, because, uh, we are going to do an album that has been on my list literally since we started this podcast. And I've just been kind of waiting for the right moment 
to lay it on you. So we are going to do the 1993, there's that mid-90s again, the 1993 album from Entombed, Wolverine Blues. All right, bring it on. Never heard it. It is the album that started the so-called death and roll genre, subgenre. It is one of my all-time favorite albums. Um, And uh, yeah, if you've never heard it, I'm guessing you've probably never heard any Entombed at all. I have not. Right. Unless I caught them on, you know, in a mix somewhere. Right, which is possible, yeah. They started out as an absolute straight-up death metal band, and then on Wolverine Blues, they took a serious left turn uh, and suddenly started incorporating, like, genuine rock and roll influences into some really fucking heavy death metal. So if you've never heard this album, I can't wait to hear, and listeners as well, can't wait to hear reactions to it because yeah i absolutely love it it's uh they're one of the bands that i had painted on the back of my leather jacket that is how much i love this album because you know well, that's, that's private place <laughs> that is absolutely that's that's prime real estate um i have a long plane flight ahead of me so this is perfect timing for my homework fantastic all right and yeah everybody else out there go and grab it i'm sure it's available on apple music spotify wherever you get your music these days uh and we will see you back here soon to talk about Entombed's Wolverine Blues. Till then, keep thrashing. Take care. <laughs>